Welcome back to Hashtag Sisters in Law. I'm Barb McQuaid. This week, we'll be discussing the next phase of the Chauvin case and looking at consent decrees and the future of policing. We'll also talk about our strategies to manage our work and our lives, juggling multiple responsibilities without sacrificing what's important. And as always, we'll be answering some of your questions at the end of the show. Uh, but but first, I think we've got some news in our group, don't we? Uh, Jill, are, do we, I understand correctly that you have finally entered the 21st century and upgraded your mainframe reel-to-reel computer to a Mac? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm dipping my toe. I'm testing um, the Mac Air, and I am going to be using it, hopefully, once it gets set up, at least for recording our podcast but maybe I'll grow into using it. But you have to remember, I worked for Motorola. And so I'm used to the things I got trained at there, which is an, you know, using a PC and an Android phone. So I, I'm going to try. And I'm taking on the challenge from Kim that once I get used to the Mac, I'm going to get an iPhone. That would really put me in the modern world. It really would. We are. We want to bring you into the blue bubble, Jill. No more <laughs> green bubbles on our text message chains. Uh, I want to bring you all the way into the twenty first century. Right. I think you'll like it. Look, I have only. I only switched from a PC laptop to um, a MacBook maybe two years ago, so it hasn't been that long. But it didn't really take a lot of time. I was. The reason I didn't want to do it was the same as you said before. Is I didn't want to learn something new. It takes no time. It's actually more. Um, to me, it's a little more intuitive, but I think you'll like it. We're early adopters in our house, so we went to Mac early, and these nice, sleek, slim ones that we have now are a huge advancement over the, the earliest Macs, but it is a lot easier. You're going to have a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm looking forward to being able to say that I like one of your texts instead of having to actually write an answer, because <laughs> I don't have that option. But I'm really happy this one is not as heavy as I thought it was going to be. It's not much heavier than the PC I'm using right now. So I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic, and it's very pretty. It's that beautiful rose gold color, isn't it? It is. I wish our audience could see it. But maybe I'll take a picture of me holding it up once I get to use it. So maybe we could get started now with our serious discussions. Um, we want to talk first, I think, about what's going to happen now in the Chauvin case. The trial is over, but there's still more to come. And one of the most frequent questions that I'm getting on Twitter is, why does it take eight weeks after the verdict for Chauvin to be sentenced? And, of course, we all know that one of the reasons is the pre-sentence investigation and also some hearings about aggravating factors. But Let's talk about those, you know, why it takes so long to get this all done. And um, Barb, can you start with that issue? Jill, I think unlike when we watch on television when a defendant is convicted and then uh, immediately sentenced right on the spot, in real cases, a judge needs time to learn more about the defendant. Uh, he knows about the case because he has watched the trial, but the pre-sentence report that will be prepared by the court itself, some part of the court, perhaps its probation department, 
will delve into everything about an offender. And this is true in, in every case. They will investigate things like the person's education level, um, any substance abuse issues that they might have, abuse they suffered as a child, mental health issues, all kinds of things, and prepare a very detailed report that first goes to both of the parties who have an opportunity to raise any objections to things they find in there. So it may be that uh, the probation department calculates the uh, sentencing guidelines in a particular way, and one party or the other has an objection. And so those get included. The probation department will attempt to resolve those objections. And then ultimately, once all that is there and the court has had a chance to review that report, they will have the hearing for sentencing. But all of that work takes some time. And so eight weeks for a sentence actually strikes me as fairly quick. In um, my former district, the Eastern District of Michigan, about three months was fairly typical. So eight weeks seems um, fairly prompt and reasonable to me. Yeah, I think people don't realize how many witnesses get interviewed about the prior record of the defendant and his social history. Um, and, and that all takes time to reach those people and to interview them and to make a recommendation. But there's another part of it, which is the sentencing guidelines uh, recommend a sentence that's generally, in all cases, significantly less than the maximum sentence allowed for that crime under the statute that created the crime. And in this case, of course, um, the maximum sentence is 40 years, but the sentencing guidelines are like 12 and a half years. And the prosecution, if they want to go beyond the sentencing guidelines, needs to submit evidence of uh, aggravating factors. And so there will be briefs submitted on that. Joyce, do you want to talk about some of the aggravating factors that are present or may be present in this case? Sure. So sentencing in this case has now been set for June 16th, to, to Barb's point about needing enough time to take a look at everything about the defendant. So the judge can sentence the whole person and not just that limited slice that he or she sees in the courtroom during trial. We haven't actually seen pleadings yet from the prosecution asking for the court to apply sentencing enhancements. But we know that they're coming because before Derek Chauvin was taken out of the courtroom, the judge talked with the lawyers and actually set a briefing schedule. So under the Minnesota sentencing guidelines, and that's sort of a, a book, it's, it's set by a commission in Minnesota that sets guidelines for how courts should sentence defendants. And in those guidelines, one of the factors that's suggested for use as an enhancement is when a crime was committed in the presence of a child. We know that one of the bystanders in this case was nine years old. And so the prosecution will likely ask the court to take that into consideration, especially because this is a police officer who's sworn to protect and serve. And he does exactly the, the opposite to this child. But the guideline factors aren't exclusive. They do set some reasons that can't be used for enhancement. You can't use race, sex, employment status, or even the fact that the defendant insisted on going to trial instead of taking a guilty plea. You can't use any of those sorts of factors to enhance a sentence. But there are a lot of good reasons um, that, the, that the commission has said can be considered. For instance, in addition to this child factor, there's, there's one that suggests that if the victim is treated with particular cruelty and the individual in, offender needs to be held accountable, 
that that too can, can form the basis for an enhancement. But important to say, enhancements aren't automatic. The sentencing manual in Minnesota is very clear that these are meant to be the exception and the rare exception. And they expect that their presumptive ranges, that 10 and a half, or rather 12 and a half years, 150 months that you talked about, Jill, mm -hmm. that that's normally going to be the presumptive sentence. And the judge can use her discretion to depart but she still has to issue a sentence that's proportional to the offense and has to memorialize the reasons for the departure in writing. So that's a little preview of what we can expect at the sentencing hearing. Yeah, it's so interesting to me, and I think there are a couple of others. The prosecution actually mentioned, besides the presence of a child, that the crime represented an abuse of government authority, and that's because the defendant was a police officer and had governmental authority. Um, but there's also a uh, an thing called a Blakely waiver, which also happened in the courtroom and was witnessed by you know everyone. And I, I'm getting questions about that. So Kim, um, or anyone, does anyone want to just mention what Blakely case says and why that matters? You know, I um, was just teaching this topic in my criminal procedure class, so I'll, I'll, I'll take a stab at it. And I thought, you know, I've encouraged our students to watch the trial because they learned so many things, although many of them reported that they found it very emotionally challenging and triggering to watch the trial. So uh, we certainly didn't make it required viewing, but this Blakely hearing was um, a great illustration of something that occurs in, in states uh, or jurisdictions where sentencing guidelines are mandatory. That is, a judge is required to follow them. In the federal system, since a 2005 case called uh, Booker, the sentencing guidelines have been advisory. And what the court said in a series of cases, including the Blakely case that came out of the state of Washington, if guidelines are mandatory, then the due process clause requires that every factor that raises the sentence above the base offense level must be found beyond a reasonable doubt by a jury. That is part of the um, the idea that, that goes back to we have a right to a jury trial to find uh, anything that makes us guilty of the offense. And that by adding these factors, we've essentially changed the offense. So in Minnesota, where there are these mandatory guidelines, Derek Chauvin has a right to have a jury find those things. But strategically, it might be to his benefit to waive that right to a jury. And that was actually raised in the Booker case, that some people might choose to waive it. And you could imagine that a jury that has just found him guilty might be inclined to apply those factors and might do so in a way that is more emotionally charged than is uh, logically reasoned. And so he uh, waived his right, and, and waivers have to be knowing, intelligent, and voluntary. So the court asked him, the judge asked him a series of questions to make sure he understood all of those things and that it was truly voluntary and was satisfied that it was. But you know, you can imagine that a judge will apply them in a way that might be a little more even-handed than a jury that just uh, found you guilty. Although normally people prefer to have a jury because, you know, your chances of getting a hung jury are one in 12 as opposed to one in one that a judge can't make a decision. But when it comes to sentencing factors, at least in the case of Derek Chauvin, he wanted to waive that because he likely perceived that it would be more advantageous to him to have the judge make this decision than the, than the jury. 
I think it's important to underline how how new this is because Blakely happened about a year before Booker. They were they were in terms one following each other, and this was during the Bush administration. And so when Blakely came down, federal prosecutors like Barb and me sort of breathed a sigh of relief because it only applied to the state system. But we all knew that Booker was working its way through the courts, and to everyone's surprise, Booker really completed what had been started in Blakely and said, you can't use these mandatory sentencing guidelines, right? These these sorts of things can't be made mandatory. And that led to a lot of dislocation in the federal system. I was our appellate chief when Booker came down and had to race across the streets and talk with our judges because we had sentencing hearings that were set that day. And I sort of begged them to sentence in the alternative to say, well, you know, if mandatory guidelines are okay, then my sentence would be X. But if I have to uh, use discretion and if, if Booker applies, then my sentence would be whatever it would be, hopefully the same thing. A lot of defendants had to be resentenced. This was really an upheaval in the system. And the point that I wanted to make is that everyone expected that there would be a legislative fix following Booker, that the Congress would go back in the federal system and sort of fix the problems that were identified. And that has never happened. So we've really had this court-created sentencing um, situation ever since Booker came down. And there's one other thing that follows this trial, which is there were three other uh, defendants in separate indictments. And that was the other officers who participated with him in this and who aided and abetted his ability to commit this murder by not intervening, by not stopping, two of them physically on the body of George Floyd, and uh, the, the third keeping the crowd at bay and not allowing them to offer assistance. So, um, Kim, what do you think is going to happen as a result of the verdict in this case with the three other defendants? Yes. So we have these three cases uh, pending. And I want to get to that just a minute. I want to say just a little bit about the sentencing, because I got a lot of questions about this after a radio interview that I did where um, someone else admonished the public, admonished uh, people in the press for keep uh, from repeating this 40 years sentence number because it's like he's not going to get that. So the, the, the more we say that um, and give the public an expectation of that, the a more of a disservice that we're doing. And I really disagree with that because that's what the statute says, first of all. Um, that is what is on there. And you are all right. when you And it's a wonderful explanation about sentencing guidelines, how they play out, um, Blakely and, and all of that. But I understand that as an attorney. But what the public is going to see is what does or does not feel like justice. And in this case, I can guarantee you, if the judge comes back and sentences Derek Chauvin to 12 years, that is not going to feel like justice in this case. And I really worry that all the nuance about the reasons why we have these sentencing guidelines, the reasons why that this outcome is going to be what it is, is going to get lost out of that gut feeling of justice because most black people will think to themselves, well, if I am convicted of second degree murder, I'm not going to walk out of prison in 12 years or 10 with good behavior or however much time. I'm going to go to prison for the rest of my life. But when you see this black man killed by a police officer, that crime is not 
not looked at as that quite serious, as with that seriousness, even though it was done in front of a child, even though it was done in front of community members who were begging him to stop, even though it was done through this videotape in front of the world. So I just want to really acknowledge and and say that both things can be true at the same time. All of these levers are there in the administration of justice. We don't want judges just willy-nilly giving people larger, you know, harsh, overly harsh sentences or sentences that don't fit the crime that are too lenient either, which is why we have these things like sentencing guidelines. We want to give defendants real reasons to be able to appeal things. So we want to make the rules clear and make the guidelines clear. And that's why all of these things are in place. But at the same time, they can work to feel like the opposite of justice. And so two months from now, that's one thing that I'm very concerned about. But before um, you answer the question, Kim, can I just interject one thing? Because that's a really interesting point. Um, And um, the data shows that since Booker was decided in 2005, you know, the whole reason, as you just said, for sentencing guidelines was to reduce disparities. So you have some kind of uniformity, regardless of where the defendant was sentenced geographically and the demographics of the defendants. And what we are seeing now is a return to the pre-guidelines disparities in the criminal justice system. We're Mm. seeing um, longer sentences for black defendants, for example. Um, And so this implicit bias is is creeping back in now that discretion is no longer uh, cabined by mandatory guidelines. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's something that uh, I'm very concerned about. But uh, Jill, you are right. So there are three, still three other defendants, uh, Jay Alexander Kung, Thomas Lane, and Tao Tao, who are charged uh, with aiding and abetting second degree uh, murder and aiding and abetting second degree manslaughter. So what the Chauvin uh, verdict, uh, does that make this case easier or harder to prove against these other three? Uh, I think the answer is yes. I think it can go both ways. On the one hand, it's a conviction for the underlying crime for both the second degree murder and the second degree manslaughter. Um, And that obviously will make the aiding and abetting charge a little easier for prosecutors to make. Uh, But on the other side, Each of these three defendants now have somebody in pocket to blame. Their defense teams can blame Derek Chauvin, saying they were just following orders, that it was really Chauvin that was doing this. They didn't want to do it. They, you know, every excuse to put it on the convicted person in order to get um, uh, them off. I, what I suspect is going to happen after this conviction of Derek Chauvin is that we are going to see plea deals made for all of these three. I think going... I don't see any of them the advantage of going to a jury trial in any of these cases, given how this worked out, even though uh, they may have that extra defense to blame Derek Chauvin. But I think you're going to see them all uh, plead out out of court um, before this gets to trial. You know, it's really interesting that Chauvin himself wanted to plead a couple of days after the murder of George Floyd. But that plea was derailed by then uh, Attorney uh, General Barr, who was in the loop because Chauvin wanted to serve his sentence in federal prison. And so ironically, he ended up sort of in the same position that he is now. But I think you're absolutely right, Kim. That means that these defendants are now on track to plead. I think we probably, well, I agree. Barb, do you too? You know, I never want to predict anything, but I I think that um, to the extent they were waiting to see how a jury would react to this case, uh, now that they've seen that, I I suppose it is a a strong factor that will be considered in making that decision. 
So after the Chauvin trial, the country is now having this conversation about the future of policing. We've seen the need for change. Some people even want radical transformation or, or abolition of policing. And while the verdict in the Chauvin trial is an important part of that discussion, ultimately it's just a verdict in one specific case and it doesn't alter policing across the country. But there's clearly change afoot. So let's let's talk about what we can expect going forward. Barb, close to home for us this week, two of our former colleagues returned to DOJ. Lisa Monaco is now the Deputy Attorney General. Vinita Gupta is now the Associate Attorney General. That makes them the number two and number three ranking officials at DOJ. And last week, Attorney General Merrick Garland announced that he was changing something that former Attorney General Jeff Sessions had done. Sessions had severely restricted the use of consent decrees. So why don't we talk for a minute about what consent decrees are and what these changes in policy and personnel pretend for policing? Yes, yeah, so consent decrees come from uh, a statute that was passed in the wake of the Rodney King beating. And it says that the Justice Department can investigate police departments for patterns or practices that violate the Constitution. So instead of looking to the so-called bad apples and looking for individual police officers who are violating people's rights, instead, this looks at department-wide systems. And there have been a number of them historically. We had one uh, during the time I was the U.S. Attorney in the Eastern District of Michigan in Detroit, where we looked at the Detroit Police Department. Um, once uh, we investigated and found findings of constitutional violations, they agreed with us, and that's pretty typical, which means that's why you get the consent judgment, the consent decree. If they were not to agree, you could file a lawsuit and go to court and get the court to enter a judgment, at, at, after which you would then go about uh, the same uh, strategy of trying to improve those practices. But when you can get a consent judgment, that's best because it says that the police department agrees with you. Yes, we are having problems in our department. We would like to change. And then resources can come into that department to help them. In Detroit, for example, the issues were excessive force or something like seven uh, fatalities of suspects in custody, conditions of confinement, which were deplorable, and the arrest of material witnesses without probable cause. So if you wanted to find someone who's uh, suspected of a crime, they would arrest uh, his girlfriend or his wife and lock her up until she talked and told them where he was, <laughs> uh, all in violation of the Constitution. Um, but over the years, with a monitor, a professional uh, police monitor who came in and helped them develop new policies, new training, new management systems, implement dashboard cameras and other kinds of tools, they were able to improve substantially. Now, it's not a perfect department today, but it does engage in constitutional policing. And so that's the idea, to be able to work with departments to help bring them up to a level um, of constitutional policing, you know, the least that we can expect. You know, consent decrees are really important because ultimately, if the department gets cold feet down the road or, or just doesn't fulfill its obligations, a court can actually intervene and, and make sure that they do. So what's the capacity of DOJ to do this kind of work with departments nationwide, Barb? Well, what I've seen is they tend to focus on larger departments. They did do one in Ferguson, Missouri, 
after the shooting of Michael Brown. And I think it was because um, the situation there was so dire and they did make findings that the municipal court system was being used as a revenue generating system that caused great distrust in the community. Um, but they can't do every department. As I said, they tend to focus on bigger cities because they want to have uh, the maximum impact. And so one of the things we saw in the last administration that was being implemented through the cops office when Ron Davis, a former police chief, was running that office was to do these smaller scale uh, self-report police departments who could ask for help on their own. You know, in the same way we have corporate compliance programs, police compliance programs, um, where people say we've had an issue and we'd like help. Uh, the Dearborn, Michigan Police Department raised its hand for one of these after two police shootings of, of uh, citizens. And the Justice Department came in and helped them modify some of their training and some of their policies regarding use of force and also the way they were dealing with people with mental illnesses. And so there are a lot of ways that the Justice Department can use this statute to try to improve policing across the country. You know, even during the Obama administration, when consent decrees were being used pretty aggressively, the capacity, the resources, the number of people trained to do them at DOJ meant that it was tough to do more than three or four in any given year because consent decrees don't happen and then end. They continue over a long period of time. So I think your point is a good one, Barb, that there has to be more than just the consent decree process. Um, Jill, can you talk about what some of the other options are? Yes, but I, I want to just follow up a little on what you and Barb were talking about in terms of the consent decrees, because Chicago had a consent decree, and then um, a new attorney general in the Trump administration said, we're not going to bother with that. And for political reasons, our mayor sort of said, oh, whoa, that's good. And so it never really got enforced, and there's some effort being made now to to do it. But there are other options which are essential. Um, and you've mentioned one which has been successful, which is the national initiative that is um, a very different kind of program and that can be very helpful in terms of getting police trained and getting some equipment for them as well as getting them trained. Uh, so this is the national initiative on building community trust. Um, during the Obama administration, there was a use of best practices developed, and there was a report called 21st Century Policing. Um, and there's also, of course, the growth of using body cams and of the federal government in some way helping to pay for the body cams, um, as well as other equipment that can be helpful in community policing. So I think those things help a lot, as well as the consent decrees. Uh, but there's also, of course, the George Floyd uh, Policing Act that would have significant um, advantages if that were to become law. And I just want to point out, I mean, we can all talk about some of the many things that are in it, but one is to create a national registry uh, of police misconduct. And the reason that's important goes back to the consent decrees, which are pattern or practice episodes. You can't develop a pattern or practice if you don't have the data underlying it. In Chicago, um, our police contract with the city said that after five years, uh, every record of police misconduct would be wiped out. Well, how do you develop a pattern or practice if it's constantly being eliminated from the database? And um, 
I belong to, I'm on the board of an organization called the BGA, Better Government Association, and we sued and won. And the courts have now said you cannot, that contract clause is not uh, enforceable. And so they have to now keep the records. And that would be required under the George Floyd Act. And I think that's really important, as is the change in uh, criminal intent standard. It goes from willful to just reckless. And that will make it a lot easier to hold accountable police officers than the uh, higher intent standard of willful. So those are some of the things that I think are really good. Jill, something else that happens in the George Floyd Act is it changes one of the elements federal prosecutors have to prove in civil rights cases against police officers who use excessive force. And of course, federal prosecutors can sue, in essence, can prosecute state and local police officers for the use of excessive force if you don't have a state prosecution like what we had in Minnesota. Can you talk a little bit about how that standard of proof changes and how that impacts this area? Yes, it makes it a lot easier to get a conviction. Um, the standard that's in existence right now is one that requires that you be willful in your intent. And under the George Floyd Act, it would be knowing or reckless. And that would allow convicting law enforcement officers for misconduct in federal cases where it's necessary to bring the federal case. And we saw intent as an element in the Chauvin case. And so I think our audience is probably now familiar with the different levels of what is required for the intent. And this is one of the advantages of this particular act. Another, of course, is getting rid of the um, qualified immunity that police officers now have against civil suits from private citizens for their misconduct. And that has been a cause of enormous uh, outcry from, from the public is that police can do this and they don't have to pay any uh, of the fines. Cities, well, you know, we saw the, the city of Minneapolis having to pay $27 million in penalties for what happened. Um, and none of that comes out of uh, Derek Chauvin's pocket. So that would change under this as well. And can I interject about um, some of those things that you talked about, Jill? Mm -hmm. I think that this is one of those areas where we have to work really hard to get the balance right. You know, one of the things the law does is try to draw a line between competing values. So, you know, on the one hand, we want to have effective policing and we want to encourage good people to be police officers. And we don't want them to be arrested and charged with a crime every time they make a mistake. On the other hand, we have... Uh, it seems that we have gone way too far in that direction because we are having all of these completely unacceptable situations with police officers uh, who are killing people. And so um, the the standard that you talked about of moving willfulness to knowing or reckless doesn't mean we completely take away that standard of proof or that proof of intent. It's just that willfulness has been in practice almost impossible to achieve because it really requires a, a deliberate uh, abuse of someone's constitutional rights, which is rarely the case in these situations. And so instead requiring that they knowingly or recklessly abuse someone's constitutional rights, I think will make those cases more fair because it will draw the line in a better place. And then with regard to qualified immunity, I, I don't know that I go so far as to agree, and some of you probably disagree with me, that it should be completely abolished. I think qualified immunity serves a purpose. The problem I've seen with qualified immunity is it says you can't sue a police officer unless he's established a clearly established, unless he's 
she's violated a clearly established right. But the way that part has been interpreted, the clearly established right, has mean has meant unless he's done something exactly like something that has already been found to be a violation, we're going to say it's not a clearly established right. How would he have known? And therefore, he is uh, entitled to qualified immunity. And you know, the interpretation has been down to the point of unless he's left-handed and it happens on a Tuesday uh, and he has blue eyes, uh, that unless it happens exactly the way it happened last time, that's not a clearly established right. And so I think some legislation to state what is and isn't a clearly established right or to give some guidance there so that we still have qualified immunity for somebody who acts in good faith, um, but is not such a complete bar to filing a civil lawsuit. So I think this is such an important point because when January 6th happens, we want the police to protect, you know, in, in that case, the Congress. When there's a mass shooting, we want to be able to call the police. And yet we know that there are a lot of problems that are going on in this area where we see the need for police reform. And it seems like it's very easy to just sort of pick a side and go that direction. And this is a much more nuanced problem um, in many ways, but, but it's a very real problem. And Kim, you wrote what I thought was the most important piece that I read this week about policing in America and helping white people understand the way the issue looks to people of color. So can you talk with us a little bit about this very provocative piece that you wrote? Yeah, I mean, I, I it plays right into what we were just talking about right now. I mean, the reason that we want uh, reforms to qualified immunity laws, the reason that changing the standard uh, for proving these cases uh, the reason that's important isn't just to make it easier to convict a police officer. Ultimately, it it is to prevent these things from happening. If police uh, departments, uh, if policing systems change in order to reduce, uh, to train their, their police officers, to put in the culture that you are not automatically going to be protected no matter what you do so long as that uniform is on. That is how you bring change. And some of the levers of that is changing what the consequences might be for engaging in these actions. And and the reason that we have to look at it um, in a whole systemic way is the same reason why most black folks, myself included, after the Chauvin verdict, um, even if we were relieved at the result of that verdict, we did not feel any safer in America with police being as they are, with the state of policing being as it is. And you're right, it's not a binary choice, being for police or being for Black Lives Matter. That's a political ploy that folks were made to believe in the past several years. That is not the truth. What Black and brown folks want to be, like all Americans, is they want to be protected, they want to feel safe, they don't want to feel like me when I was walking my dog last year in the middle of the pandemic, my elderly dog who has arthritis, who has, you know, all kinds of illnesses. And so we take a little shortcut in front of our home to, you know, after our night walk. And I was approached by a police officer. And all I could think about was the fact that he had a gun on his hip. I was holding something in my hand and I didn't know how that was going to end up. I didn't know that he would see that what I was holding was a retractable dog leash with my, you know, dog that looks like Benji on the end of it. I, I didn't know if he was mistaking me for somebody else who he might have been in pursuit of. I didn't know. And the reason that he came up to me is because he admonished me for jaywalking. 
And I thought there is no reason why we should have a policing system where a pedestrian infraction that's probably punishable by a $10 fine should be handled by somebody with a gun. It's the reason why, so I, I told you all a story that lasts in the middle of the pandemic, in the middle of everything that was going on, it was a high stress time. It was worsened by the fact that um, I have insomnia, so I don't fall asleep easily, but my neighbor had this, you know, hot rod car that he would rev up during his morning commute, which happened to be at 5 a.m. And it happened every day and it drove me crazy. So I went to the website of the town that I lived in to find out how do I, you know, I looked up to make sure that it is a civil infraction to do that. Uh, find out how to file, you know, a, just a civil complaint or something, you know, get them to stop, give them, make someone with authority, send them a letter to make them stop, right? And the answer was the agency that handles that is the police. Now, I had seen this person driving. I knew he was a man of color. There is no way I was going to call the police to instigate what could be a stop that could end up the way the stop of Dante Wright turned out. There's no way. Again, there's no reason for these civil infractions that police police are doing too much. There are too many places. They're in schools. They're... Um, they're just in too many nonviolent situations where they don't have to be. In the town where I lived in, if someone called an ambulance, a police car comes. If someone reports a fire in their oven, a police car comes. I think we need to reform the system that different agencies, our taxpayer dollars are still uh, demanding that we get the services that we want, but that it's not done by cops because statistics show that black folks are 20% more likely in a pullover um, to be pulled over than white folks. Statistics show that uh, deadly force is four to six times more likely to be used against black and, black and brown folks than white folks. It's the system that begets these, this, this, the George Floyds of the world, the Dante Wrights of the world, the Philando Castiles of the world. And by pulling policing out of places that it doesn't need to be, I think is a crucial element of that. This is such an important conversation, and I know it's one that we'll continue to have over the next months. This conversation about can we have mental health workers or people that are addiction specialists supplementing police or even in, in place of police in some areas, it's tough to calibrate a system that keeps everyone, including the first responders, safe while ameliorating some of the racial injustice that just seems to pervade the system when you look at the statistics. So we look forward to your continued writing, Kim. And I think that you made a point that's important. This isn't a matter of being pro-police or anti-police. This is a matter of being pro-community and figuring out what we can do to keep communities safe. So, Barb, have you been using HelloFresh? I have, Jill. You know, I uh, historically have not been much of a cook. Um, it's a bit of a joke in my household, as a matter of fact. But HelloFresh really makes it very easy to make these healthy and really delicious meals. So I've been really getting into it. We have had fish, and we've had uh, chicken, and we've had lean cuts of beef. And my whole family really likes it. Uh, we've, we're eating our vegetables, and uh, we're really enjoying it. How about you? I love it. I cannot believe that I am putting on a restaurant-ready meal on a plate every time I use it. It looks professional. I feel so creative. I feel like I've really done something. And I'm learning some cooking things 
that I can use when I'm not having the meal, like how to roast vegetables that come out fabulously. So it's really wonderful. And this week, I got two of the same things so that I could actually have company and serve a meal that I knew would be delicious. And I'm doing that tonight after we're done recording. Very nice. I love it. I think everyone should have the experience and go to hellofresh.com slash sisters12 and use code sisters12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. That's HelloFresh.com slash Sisters12 and use code Sisters12 for 12 free meals, including free shipping. HelloFresh is America's number one meal kit. Look for the link in our show notes. Now for our next segment, we want to talk about something a little more personal. And it, it was spurred by a question that we got a couple weeks ago uh, from at Cape Doghouse. It says, Dear sisters, you all have multiple jobs and teaching posts, and at least three of you are on MSNBC constantly. How do you juggle these various positions? And do you sleep? Um, I will start um, in talking about how we juggle a busy life. You know, I think for me, it is a matter that I learned over time that I'm wired that way. You know, my brain works best when it's like a browser with about 14 tabs open. Um, it's just my natural spot when I have a, a bunch of different projects happening at once um, is when I'm at my best. And I think in retrospect, when I look back at why I stopped practicing law, I think that was a big reason. When I was a lawyer, being a lawyer was my only job. I got up in the morning. I thought about that job. I did that job all day. Often the days were long. I went home. I thought about that job as I was eating my dinner. I went to bed and I woke up and I thought about it again. And after several years, I thought, oh my God, I don't think I could do this for the rest of my life. I liked, I got, um, I was busy. I liked practicing law. I liked going to court. I got my own caseload right out of law school. I love the people that I worked with. I'm still, they're still very good friends of mine, but I just didn't feel fulfilled. And it wasn't until I became a journalist, and I frankly just wasn't making much money, so I had to do a lot of side gigs, that I realized, oh, well, this is fun. I like being able to to do one job and then turn my mind to something else. And then I started um, designing clothes just for myself, and then that became a business. And I liked that. I liked having different things. So now I currently have the ability to do my journalism uh, in the paper and in, in the Boston Globe, uh, on TV, on MSNBC, which is different, different audience, a different way to explain things. I get to do this podcast with these brilliant women, uh, where I learn a lot as well as contribute to this conversation. I'm on radio. Just for me, this isn't for everybody. This is how I do my best work. This is actually, um, it, 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 it is less stressful to me to have different outlets than it was just to have one job. And as for sleep, I have insomnia, so I just make it work for me. You know, <laughs> I might as well. Barb and what I about had you, a Joyce? Colleague, Barb and I had a, a U.S. attorney colleague named Paul Fishman. Fish was the U.S. attorney in New Jersey. And, and one time when we, we were doing a lot of criminal justice reform work at a very fast pace, and it was relatively uh, intense, and Fish looked at me and he said, Vance? We can sleep when it's over. I, I think I sometimes live by those words. And, and I'll, I'll tell you also, you guys know, right? I have four kids. 
This is the part where I'm going to have to say something nice about my husband. It pains me to say this, but Bob is is really great. He actually has always been a full partner. When we were little and we cloth diapered our kids, um, Bob would do the laundry. And Bob has always helped with cleaning up in the kitchen. He really didn't start cooking until HelloFresh came into our lives. But now he's a very accomplished cook and helps with that. And, and so when our second child was born, I sort of hit a point that was make or break for me. Our second kid was born with multiple heart defects and a complex immune system disability and was in the hospital for a really long time. And I realized I could only do what I did because of support from the people around me. It was my husband, it was my mother-in-law, but it was also my colleagues. I was in the hospital writing an appellate brief um, in an 11th Circuit case when my baby was having open heart surgery. And the guys in my office picked up a lot of my work. My then boss, a, a woman who was the U.S. Attorney, Carol Privet, cut a deal where I was able to take a lot of time off from work and then was able to work part-time from home. And the agents, the way that they filtered that notion that instead of being in the office, they would come to my house to get a search warrant, was they loved it because they could come over and have hot chocolate chip cookies and hold the baby while I was reading their search warrants and telling them that they needed uh, to put a little bit more into it before I was willing to take it to a judge. And I was, I had the good fortune to sort of evolve um, this support network that let me do what you talk about, Kim, because like you, I, I think attention deficit disorder is a blessing, not a curse. I like doing a lot of different things at one time. Um, I knit while we podcast most of the time. I'm actually not doing it today. But in order to be able to juggle successfully and to work at a high level like we all do, you have to have an intentional network in your life of people that love you and see value in what you're doing and support you. And I think we're all entitled to actually ask for that from the people around us. That's something that we have to do. So Amen. I'll just leave it there. Barb, what about you? Well, like Joyce, uh, I too have four children, which are you know the greatest part of my life and a husband who is a great partner. I, I often tell students that the most important decision you're gonna make about your career is your choice uh, for a partner. Um, you may choose not to have a partner, uh, but if you're gonna choose a partner, um, you need somebody who is going to support you and what you wanna do. And I, I too have been blessed with a husband. My husband, Dan, does uh, uh, far more work around the house than I do. Don't don't tell him, hope he doesn't listen. Um, but, <laughs> That's the um, problem, right? If they hear us saying nice stuff, it's all over. <laughs> he had a boss, He was his first job out of law school was to clerk for a judge named Cornelia Kennedy on the Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the advice she gave him upon getting married was that um, you both have to feel like you're contributing 75% to the marriage, right? If, if you are, you're probably only doing 50%, but if you each feel like you're doing 75% and that's your goal, then you'll probably be able to, to pull it off. But I have found that I need good partners at home and at work to make it all go. And you can't be afraid to ask for help when you need it. I think that's one of the things that so many women are afraid to do is to ask for help. Um, and to also try not to beat yourself up too much whenever you inevitably fail to do 
one or the other job not as well as, as you might have. You know, if all I had to do was work on my job, I could be a superstar. If all I had to do was be a mom and a wife, I could be a superstar maybe. Um, but uh, because you're doing all these things, you tend to get spread thin and sometimes um, you aren't able to, to be at everything you want to be at or, you know, do things as much as you would. But, you know, we are such so often our own worst enemy. I, I remember having an epiphany once when I was going to pick up my kids from daycare and I saw this other mom sprinting from the car in the rain to try to get in before they close their doors at seven o'clock or whatever it was to avoid a fine. And, you know, she was just so upset with herself for uh, running late. And I remember saying to her, you know, it's okay. You're doing an awful lot. And now we gave her, you know, like a real pep talk. And then I thought to myself, I should give myself the same pep talk. <laughs> yeah. We should not be so hard on ourselves, right? So I think that sometimes we're our own worst enemy on those things. But um, we have to be willing to say no and control our own agenda and our own calendar. Um, and I th also have learned not to uh, let the urgent overshadow the important. Uh, sometimes, you know, things that happen and somebody wants it right away, it gives this false sense of importance when in fact, even though it's maybe urgent, it's not as important as some other things. And so maybe you can't get to that. You know, email is a great example. It's popping up, it's popping up. I learned from a, a uh, female head of the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco and Firearms, she only checked her email in the morning at noon and in the evening, because she didn't want the constant interruption of her flow of thought, she had to work on things that required her concentration. So that idea of not allowing the urgent to overshadow the important has also been uh, a good lesson I've learned from others. How about you, um, Jill? You must have uh, developed some some good lessons along the way. Yes, and I love everything that everyone has said and agree with everything that has been said. Um, I would say a couple of other things I've learned is to compartmentalize, which is when I'm working on something, I focus on that thing and I don't get distracted. And, but I am like Kim and I love having a hundred tabs opened at once. I like to multitask. I am much better that way. I also have a body clock that says that midnight is when I should be really wide awake and, and working. And so I can keep going till very late. I need very little sleep. My doctor says that's medically incorrect. Um, but I, I wake up and I feel refreshed and fine after a few hours sleep. I'm trying to, to do better on the sleep side. But I think having a lighted pen next to my bed helps because I get great ideas as I'm falling asleep. And if I turn on the light, it wakes me completely up. But if I take my lighted pen out, I can write it down and remember it in the morning without waking myself up. Um, so yeah, I think the only difference I would have is when I was in private practice, I never woke up thinking about my job and went to bed thinking about my job. When I've been in government, I have always done that. That's always been wonderful for me. And having a portfolio now where I'm busy doing speaking and writing and uh, television and the podcasts, um, that makes me really happy because I go from one great thing to another and I so enjoy it. Um, the other thing that I will say is I miss the gene for being a housekeeper and uh, that's something I have delegated. Uh, I hire someone to help me with that because it's just one of the things I do not choose to spend my time on. I love cooking and, and like yes. Joyce, or, or like Joyce's husband, it, it's made easier by HelloFresh, but um, I've always liked that. I, I love making soups, which you can then have for, you know, days because you can make enough of it. 
And I feel creative doing that. It's a very creative outlook. So I, I try to keep something creative as well as just professional in my life. And um, having the support of knowing you can come home and complain and have a sympathetic ear does help. So thank you, Michael. You know, Jill, my mother-in-law, who was a wonderful, wonderful person, she died several years ago, and I still miss her a lot, but she used to tell me all these great things like, honey, when you turn 60, you can quit caring what people think and smoke cigars in public and drink scotch, like stuff that I'll never do. But she also told me when my kids were little and I was obsessed because my house wasn't as clean as it should be, she said, you know, your kids are never going to remember that there were dust bunnies in the corner, but they are going to remember if you had time to sit down on the floor and play with them at night. And I have probably taken that to an extreme. And, and like <laughs> you, Jill, I delegate the cleaning functions in my life. Um, but I think that that's actually really good advice. You can't do everything. I don't care how many people tell you that you can. You have to figure out what you're good at and what you enjoy and what it makes sense to delegate and then delegate it and let it go. Yeah, and yeah. I'll tell you something else your mother-in-law didn't tell you. When you turn 70, you can start talking to strangers in elevators. And <laughs> it's, it's amazing. The, you know, I will say- Look someone, out, Chicago. That's a great coat you're wearing. I love that color on you. And people love hearing that. I would have never, ever done that before. I would have just thought that's so, I don't know, I just couldn't have done it. So there's a lot of things that aging is really nice for. Don't sit next to Jill on the airplane. <laughs> that's, my, that's my takeaway. Well, I think this is really interesting. It's a, it's a really important problem that a lot of people struggle with, right? We all have these multiple hats we have to wear. So I, I hope some of our tips are, are helpful for folks. So Kim, <laughs> I've actually got two third love bras now. One is the traditional underwire style, and the other is one that you pull over your head. It's a little bit more sporty. And I really love them. They're both comfortable, and that matters to me a whole lot after this COVID year. I'm really not willing to wear a bra that's not comfortable anymore. Third love is great. What about you? Yeah, I agree. You know, being uncomfortable, even though it has been this pandemic and we've been at home, we have so much to do. And the last thing you want to do is be uncomfortable. And I took the third love quiz to find my uh, size. And I found out I was wearing the wrong bra size probably for years. Um, <laughs> and they even have half cups. That's how close they get to it. So I've been wearing the Pima cotton set which is so comfortable, I forget that it's on, and the last thing you want to be thinking about is your underwear, right? So it's great. Isn't that the truth? So all of our listeners can now take the fun and easy fitting room quiz, and then Third Love takes care of the rest. They focus on your fit, on your size, your shape, current issues, and your personal style to deliver bras and underwear that are perfect for you. And with their custom design bras with half cup going from AA to I, amazing loungewear and wireless styles, the number one rated 24-7 classic t-shirt bra, that's one of my favorites, and more, Third Love gives you the ultimate underwear shopping experience. They even give their gently used returned bras to women in need, donating over $40 million in bras so far. Third Love knows your one true fit is out there. So right now, they're offering listeners 20% off your first order. 
Go to thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 20% off your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash sistersinlaw for 20% off today or look for the link in our show notes. Let's go to some listener questions. If you have a question for us, please email us at sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet us using hashtag sistersinlaw. If we don't get to your question during the show, keep an eye on our Twitter feeds throughout the week and we'll answer as many questions as we can there. Our first question comes to us from at Dan Brooklyn, who asks, why do citizens face consequences for lying to Congress, yet they can lie to the American people without consequence? Who wants to take that one? Well, let me start. Um, First of all, the simple answer is that there are laws that say that if you lie to Congress, you will be convicted of perjury. And those are part of our criminal code, sections 1621 and 1001, Title 18. Uh, And so that's the, the easy answer. But it's interesting because during Watergate, we considered it to be at least an impeachable offense for the president to lie to the public. And in the roadmap that the Watergate prosecutor gave to the House Judiciary Committee looking at impeachment, we laid out a number of things that were provable lies that the president had said to the public. And so I think there is at least that way of holding uh, elected officials to be honest with the people they represent. And of course, go ahead, Kim. I was going to say, and of course, the ultimate uh, um, uh, accountability comes at the ballot box, right? If you have somebody who you can't trust, you can not vote for them and they can lose that, uh, lose that position. It doesn't always happen that way, but that's the way the system was set up. I think the only reason it's even a live question is because there was so much toleration of Trump's lies to the public over the last four years. And that was unprecedented. In, you know, normal America, people vote the bums out when that happens. Our next question comes from Rohanna and at Snowbird 0007. Do you know how a defendant like Derek Chauvin finances his defense? So that's an interesting uh, question. Uh, I've actually gotten that question, heard that question a lot. And it was actually, I think, at one point during trial, it was mentioned uh, that the police union was paying for Derek Chauvin's defense in this case. That's actually not true. It's actually an organization called the Minnesota, Minnesota Police Association. And what usually happens in, with many police departments is that the police union itself doesn't fund uh, legal defenses, but they pay into a fund that uh, a lot of police unions join in uh, in order to pay for the legal expenses of a police officer who finds itself um, himself in court, either civilly or criminally, based on uh, actions in the line of duty. And so in this case, it was no different. Uh, that association hired a law firm, which provides his defense, and it's something that we frequently uh, see. Um, and that is what happened in this case. All right. Very good. And um, our last question comes from at Jazz Dax, who says, how does the Supreme Court decide which cases of the thousands it receives make the cut for review? Yeah, I'll start. I mean, 
So we talked a little before about the process, right? Either a court, uh, a case makes its way through federal court or state court, uh, and they file, an appellant files what is called a writ of certiorari, um, asking the Supreme Court to take up a case. And the Supreme Court takes up only a tiny fraction of the cases before it. So there are a lot of factors. It's purely discretionary. The Supreme Court can choose to take up a case and not or not take up a case with the exception of uh, lawsuits between states, which is something separate we don't have to talk about here. Um, But generally speaking, the court will take up a case if one of several factors is in place. If there is something called a circuit split, which means the circuit courts of appeals are coming to different conclusions on an issue of statutory interpretation or an issue of constitutional interpretation. You can't have different courts coming up with, you know, you can't have different standards being set in different parts of the country in different courts. So the Supreme Court will come in and decide it. Um, If it is an issue that is very uh, urgent, the Supreme Court will likely take it up. For example, Bush v. Gore was an election was at stake. Uh, And so not only did they take that case up, they took the case up, they expedited the the arguments so that they can issue a quick opinion. Um, That is another uh, case in which they take it up. Or if there is something uh, in a constitutional interpretation that even if there is not a circuit split, the Supreme Court seems very interested in taking that case up, particularly if they want to reverse uh, an opinion that they think was decided wrongly. Um, in the past. That happens very rarely, but that would also be another factor um, that takes it up. But generally speaking, so long as four justices decide they want to take up a case, they can. Um, and so a lot of one answer, one factor is we don't know. We, we don't always know the reason why a Supreme Court picks up uh, picks a certain case. One other reason they might take up a case is if it's what's called an issue of first impression. I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, that we're 200 plus years in and there are still legal issues that have never been decided. But if a case poses a question that's never been answered, then sometimes those cases also will get consideration. Kim, I think your answer is absolutely the right one. It's whatever intrigues enough justices on the court to get them to take the case. And that's sometimes the answer why they won't take up a case. I mean, very often when I I covered the court for uh, eight years and still write about it, and you think, oh, they're totally, I thought last year they were totally going to take up a gun control case, right? And when we had all these cases that were primed and you had one of the justices even signaling in a different opinion that they're ready to take up a gun control case and we're all ready to go. We thought it might be one from Massachusetts even and nothing. They they declined to take it up because they're just like, nope, we don't want to. So it goes both ways. They wait for the right case. There's this legal saying, good facts make good law. And so I think the court sometimes, even when it really wants to address an issue, it waits for the right set of facts to come before it so that it can go the direction it it intends to head. Right. And that direction, that that discretion, I think, is one of the hidden powers of the Supreme Court. Um, If it doesn't want to take up an issue, it doesn't take it up. And so in many ways, that's what shapes uh, the the law going forward is the decisions that it makes. I had a law professor who once told me he had clerked for Sandra Day O'Connor. And um, during the time he was a law clerk, a case came along and they had voted it down for review. And there was something about it that caused him to go back and look at it a second time and ultimately recommended to his justice that they take it up. And uh, 
prevailed upon three others to do the same. And that case turned out to be Batson v. Kentucky, which is a really important ah. case that has had a long progeny and stands for the proposition that you can't um, uh, discriminate against jurors based on race. It's a violation of the rights of the defendant and the jury. So um, they control so much. They have so much power in just that decision of which cases they're going to take up. Yeah, that's a really interesting insight because we saw yesterday in Jones the case about minors and, and criminal convictions that the new center of the court looks like Justice Kavanaugh, right? He's been in the majority on every opinion this term, and he's the new swing vote. It's no longer Justice Kennedy who's retired. It's not Chief Justice Roberts. It's Justice Kavanaugh. I think we'll... I think we should review, we should revisit that topic in another podcast because I have some thoughts. <laughs> That's a great one. We definitely need to take up this term in the Supreme Court. You don't right? think life for a minor is a good idea? Is that the idea? No. You know, I was involved Actually. in an amicus brief that opposed the way the Jones case came out. So it's possible that I have strong feelings. But really, we should talk more about the Supreme Court. It's an endlessly yeah. fascinating topic. Agreed. I like beer, too. All right. Well, <laughs> thank you for listening to Hashtag Sisters in Law with Kimberly Atkins, Jill Weinbanks, Joyce Vance, and me, Barb McQuaid. Don't forget to send in your questions by email to sistersinlaw at politicon.com or tweet them for next week's show using hashtag Sisters in Law. And please support this week's sponsors, HelloFresh and Third Love. You can find their links in the show notes. To keep up with us every week, Follow hashtag Sisters in Law on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And please give us a five-star review. We love to read your comments. See you next week with another episode, hashtag Sisters in Law. Mm -hmm.